Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty. We're dealing with a particular redemption. And that started yesterday. This is part two, the final part. Actually, number three in his uh, series of, I think, five things that he will tell us about the redemption. And in the third place, we begin today, we may measure the greatness of Christ's redemption by the price he paid. It's impossible for us to know how great were the pangs of our Savior, but yet some glimpse of them will afford us a little idea of the greatness of the price he paid for us. O Jesus, who shall describe thine agony? The poet sings, Come, all ye springs, dwell in my head and eyes. Come, clouds and rain. My grief hath need of all the watery things that nature hath produced. Let every vein suck up a river to supply mine eyes, my weary weeping eyes, too dry for me, unless they get new conduits, new supplies, to bear them out, and with my state agree. O Jesus, thou wast a sufferer from thy birth, a man of sorrows and grief's acquaintance. Thy sufferings fell on thee in one perpetual shower until the last dread hour of darkness. Then, not in a shower, but in a cloud, a torrent, a cataract of grief, thine agonies did dash upon thee. See him yonder. It is a night of frost and cold, but he is all abroad. It is night. He sleeps not, but he is in prayer. Hark to his groans. Did ever man wrestle as he wrestles? Go and look in his face. Was ever such suffering depicted upon mortal countenance as you can there behold? Hear his own words. My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. He rises. He is seized by traitors and is dragged away. Let us step to the place when just now he was engaged in agony. O oh God, and, and what is this we see? What is this that stains the ground? It is blood. Whence came it? Had he some wound which oozed afresh through his dire struggle? Ah, no. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Oh, agonies that surpass the word by which we name you. Oh, sufferings that cannot be compassed in language. What could ye be that thus could work upon the Savior's blessed frame and force a bloody sweat to fall from his entire body? This is the beginning. This is the opening of the tragedy. Follow him mournfully, thou sorrowing church, to witness the consummation of it. He is hurried through the streets. He is dragged first to one bar and then to another. He's cast and condemned before the Sanhedrin. He is mocked by Herod. He's tried by Pilate. His sentence is pronounced. Let him be crucified. And now the tragedy cometh to its height. His back is bared. He is tied to the low Roman column. The bloody scourge plows furrows on his back and with one stream of blood his back is red. A crimson robe 
that proclaims him emperor of misery. He is taken into the guardroom. His eyes are bound, and then they buffet him, and he and they say, Prophesy who it was that smote thee. They spit into his face. They plait a crown of thorns and press his temples with it. They array him in a purple robe. They bow their knees and mock him. All silently he sits. He answers not a word. When he was reviled, he reviled not again, but committed himself unto him whom he came to serve. And now they take him, and with many a jeer and jibe they drive him from the place and hurry him through the streets. Emaciated by continual fastings and depressed with agony of spirit, he stumbles beneath his cross. Daughters of Jerusalem, he faints in your streets. They raise him up. They put his cross upon another's shoulders, and they urge him on, perhaps with many a spear prick, until at last he reaches the Mount of Doom. Rough soldiers seize him and hurl him on his back. The transverse wood is laid beneath him. His arms are stretched to reach the necessary distance. The nails are grasped. Four hammers at one moment drive four nails through the tenderest parts of his body, and there he lies upon his own place of execution, dying on his cross. Now it is not done yet. The cross is lifted by the rough soldiers. There is the socket prepared for it. It is dashed into its place, and they fill up the place with earth. And there it stands. But see the Savior's limbs, how they quiver. Every bone has been put out of joint by the dashing of the cross in that socket. How he weeps, how he sighs, how he sobs. Nay, more, hark how at last he shrieks in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? O son, no wonder thou didst shut thine eye and look no longer upon a deed so cruel. O rocks, no wonder that ye did melt and rend your hearts with sympathy when your Creator died. Never man suffered as this man suffered. Even death itself relented, and many of those who had been in their graves arose and came into the city. This, however, is, is but the outward Believe me, brethren, the inward was far worse. What our Savior suffered in his body was nothing compared to what he endured in his soul. You cannot guess, and I cannot help you to guess, what he endured within. Suppose for one moment, to repeat a sentence I have often used, suppose a man who had passed into hell, suppose his eternal torment could all be brought into one hour. And then suppose it could be multiplied by the number of the saved, which is a number past all human enumeration. Can you now think what a vast aggregate of misery there would have been in the sufferings of all God's people if they had been punished through all eternity? And recollect that Christ had to suffer an equivalent for all the hells of all his redeemed. I can never express that thought. 
better than by using these oft-repeated words. It seemed as if hell were put into his cup. He seized it in, and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. And so that there was nothing left of all the pangs and miseries of hell for his people ever to endure. I say not that he suffered the same, but he did endure an equivalent for all this and gave God the satisfaction for all the sins of all his people and consequently gave him an equivalent for all their punishment. Now can you dream? Can you guess the great redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ? I shall be very brief upon the next head. The fourth way of measuring the Savior's agonies is this. We must compute them by the glorious deliverance which he has effected. Rise up, believer. Stand up in thy place. And this day testify to the greatness of what the Lord has done for thee. Let me tell it for thee. I will tell thy experience and mine in one breath. Once my soul was laden with sin. I had revolted against God and grievously transgressed. The terrors of the law got hold upon me. The pangs of conviction seized me. I saw myself guilty. I looked to heaven, and I saw an angry God sworn to punish me. I looked beneath me, and I saw a yawning hell ready to devour me. I sought by good works to satisfy my conscience, but all in vain. I endeavored by attending to the ceremonies of religion to appease the pangs that I felt within, but all without effect. My soul was exceeding sorrowful, almost unto death. I could have said with the ancient mourner, My soul chooseth strangling and death rather than life. This was the great question that always perplexed me. I have sinned. God must punish me. How can he be just if he does not? And then, since he is just, what is to become of me? At last mine eyes turned to that sweet word which says, The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth from all sin. I took that text to my chamber I sat there and meditated. I saw one hanging on a cross. It was my Lord Jesus. There was the thorn crown, and there the emblems of unequaled and peerless misery. I looked upon him, and my thoughts recalled that word which says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then said I within myself, Did this man die for sinners? I am a sinner. Then he died for me. Those he died for, he will save. He died for sinners. I am a sinner. He died for me. He will save me. My soul relied upon that truth. I looked to him. And as I viewed the flowing of his soul-redeeming blood, my spirit rejoiced, for I could say with the poet, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to his cross I cling. Naked look to him for dress, 
helpless come to him for grace. Black, I to this fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And now, believer, you shall tell the rest. The moment that you believed, your burden rolled from your shoulder, and you became light as air. Instead of darkness, you had light. For the garments of heaviness, you had the robes of praise. Who shall tell your joy since then? You have sung on earth hymns of heaven, and in your peaceful soul you have anticipated the eternal Sabbath of the redeemed. Because you have believed, you have entered into rest. Yes, tell it the wide world over. They that believe by Jesus' death are justified from all things from which they could not be freed by the works of the law. Tell it in heaven that none can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Tell it upon earth that God's redeemed are free from sin in Jehovah's sight. Tell it even in hell that God's elect can never come there. For Christ hath died for them, and who is he that shall condemn them? Well, I have hurried over that uh, to come to the last point, which is the sweetest of all. Jesus Christ, we are told in our text, came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent of the design of it. He gave his life a ransom for many. So I must now return to that controverted point again. We are often told, I, I mean those of us who are commonly nicknamed by the title of Calvinists, and we are not very much ashamed of that. We think that Calvin, after all, knew more about the gospel than almost any man who has ever lived, uninspired. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or, or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? Well, they say, well, no, certainly not. Well, we ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of, of any man in particular? And they answer, no. So they're obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then, we will go back to the old statement. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say no. You're obliged to say so, for you believe that even after a man has been pardoned, he may yet fall from grace and perish. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude, 
that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. And now, beloved, when you hear anyone laughing or jeering at a limited atonement, you may tell him this. General atonement is like a a great wide bridge with only half an arch. It does not go across the stream. It only professes to go halfway. It does not secure the salvation of anybody. Now, I'd rather put my foot upon a bridge as narrow as Hungerford, which went all the way across, than on a bridge that was as wide as the world, if it did not go all the way across the stream. I'm told it is my duty to say that all men have been redeemed, and I am told that there is a scriptural warrant for it who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Well, now that looks like a very, very great argument indeed on the other side of the question. Uh, For instance, look here. The whole world has gone after him. Well, did all the world go after Christ? Then went all Judea and were baptized of him in Jordan. Was all Judea or all Jerusalem baptized in the Jordan. Ye are of God, little children, and the whole world lieth in the wicked one. Does the whole world there mean everybody? If so, how was it then that there were some who were of God? (laughs) The words world and all are used in seven or eight senses in Scripture, and it's very rarely that all means all persons taken individually. The words are generally used to signify that Christ has redeemed some of all sorts, some Jews, some Gentiles, some rich, some poor, has not restricted his redemption to either Jew or Gentile. Uh, Leaving controversy, however, I will now, I will now answer a question. Tell me then, sir, whom did Christ die for? Will you answer me a question or two? And I'll tell you whether he died for you. Do you need a Savior? Do you feel that you need a Savior? Are you this morning conscious of sin? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost? Then Christ died for you, and you will be saved. Are you this morning conscious that you have no hope in the world but Christ? Do you feel that you are, you of yourself, cannot offer an atonement that can satisfy God's justice? Have you given up all confidence in yourselves? And can you say upon your bended knees, Lord, save, or I perish? Well, Christ died for you. If you're saying this morning, "Eh, I'm as good as I ought to be. I can get to heaven by my own good works. Then remember, the scripture says of Jesus, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So long as you are in that state, I have No atonement to preach to you. But if this morning you feel guilty, wretched, conscious of your guilt, and are ready to take Christ to be your only Savior, I can not only say to you that you may be saved, but it's better still that you will be saved. When you're stripped of everything but hope in Christ, 
when you're prepared to come empty-handed and take Christ to be your all and to be yourself nothing at all, then you may look up to Christ and you may say, Thou dear, thou bleeding Lamb of God, thy griefs were endured for me. By thy stripes I am healed, and by thy sufferings I am pardoned. And then see what peace of mind you will have. For if Christ has died for you, you cannot be lost. God will not punish twice for one thing. If God punished Christ for your sin, he will never punish you. Payment, God's justice cannot demand. First, at the bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. We can today, if we believe in Christ, march to the very throne of God, stand there, and if it is said, Art thou guilty? We can say, Yes, guilty. But if the question is put, What have you to say why you should not be punished for your guilt? We can answer, Great God, thy justice and thy love are both guarantees that thou wilt not punish us for sin, for thou didst not punish Christ, did thou not punish Christ for sin for us? How canst thou then be just? How canst thou be God at all if thou dost punish Christ, the substitute, and then punish man himself afterwards? Your only question is, did Christ die for me? The only answer we can give is, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Can you write your name down among the sinners? Not among the complimentary sinners, but among those that feel it, bemoan it, lament it, seek mercy on account of it. Are you a sinner? That felt, that known, that professed, you are now invited to believe that Jesus Christ died for you because you are a sinner and you are bidden to cast yourself upon this great immovable rock and find eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's from the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4, pages 129 and 30. May the Lord add his blessing, as he always does, to Spurgeon's reading and preaching of God's Word. Thank you for being here today, and you're going to find other um, great men of God on this website whose stories and words I have read. You'll find hundreds of North Korea audios, North Korea photos, so that you can pray for that land. You'll find uh, a study of the Quran, a study of Muhammad, a study of many studies of Bible prophecy. We'll go through the whole Bible several times. We, we go through, we have many commentaries. We have books. If you click on store, you'll find 50, 51 books right now. Browse through them. Each one of them is available when you get to Amazon on Kindle for a dollar. <laughs> or you can order from me by just clicking on gift on the page you're at. Just click the number 10. And that $10 will, will get you two full discs of, not audio, but written messages of every book that I've ever written. All 50, now that's actually 52 books will be on there. Um, 
just be sure that your address is on the form that you fill out. Or you can go to Facebook uh, to find out a little bit about your reader here. Go to my timeline. Or go to criesfromamonguscom if you prefer reading things. Or if you would like uh, to join in a visual thing, YouTube. Bob from Hackberry House is the name of my channel there. Men, if you would like to join me on a Saturday night, we have several men who have already been joining me on a regular basis. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful fellowship we're having already, I believe. You have to have Zoom on your uh, iPhone or your uh, whatever, on your phone or your computer. And um, if you will just send me an email, bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com, I will send you an invitation to come to our meeting. I'll send you the link as to how to get on there with us. I hope that happens for you. It's every Saturday night, 7 o'clock Chicago time. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.